Welcome, friends, to Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. I am your host, Curtis Kopotic, and I am joined by my co-host, Amber Brown. And today we are talking with Forrest Richardson. Forrest is bringing his years of experience in the safety world to us today and bringing us a little bit of a different format of podcast than we've done in the past. But we're going to do a bit of a case study regarding machine guarding and how that plays a role with amputations. Now, obviously, that's one of the last things anybody wants to happen. By taking the effort of following a simple process, which he lays out, that can be applicable at any site that has heavy equipment that either moves or has internal moving parts. That's what I love about it. It can be applied to any and every site. And a a particular case study, as he shows, didn't really take any of those steps and they put all their eggs in the wrong basket and just things did not work out well. So talks about how we can avoid all those issues by doing things the right way the first time. So take a listen as we talk with Forrest regarding machine guarding today. Now, Forrest, today we're going to be talking about uh, machine guarding and preventing one of the, I think, one of the worst injuries you can have. It's definitely up there of preventing amputations. So now considering OSHA's National Emphasis Program, or NEP, as we'll be talking about it throughout this, on amputation in manufacturing industries, we've mentioned in our previous podcast. Now, can you provide an overview of what NEPs are and where they come from? Absolutely. Um, NEPs, what they are really is temporary programs that focus on OSHA's resources on particular hazards and high hazard industries. The way they come about all that is they use inspection data, injury and illness data that that employers submit, the NIOSH or the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health reports, peer-reviewed literature, analyses of inspection findings, and all those other available resources. And then they kind of combine that and say, okay, is the juice worth the squeeze? Do we need to focus on this topic? So that's kind of how they come about. Forrest, do you have any example or an example of where employers can find the NEPs and local emphasis programs? Absolutely. It's really easy to find. If you go to OSHA.gov and you just, you can either type in the search block enforcement page or go to their enforcement page link. They have one right up there at the very top. And if you look underneath there, you're going to see the national emphasis programs and the local emphasis programs for the different regions that OSHA has. It'd be real easy to find. So one of the things we've talked about is machine guarding always being a part of OSHA's top 10, you know, and then 2021 was no exception. So what are they looking for and how many violations did they cite just as a refresher for 2021? Sure. Uh, You know, machine guarding, it is, it's kind of one of those things that's always on the top. 10 list year over year, it might, it may go up or down on the list, you know, per se, depending on what else is going on out there. But machine guarding on, in 29 CFR 1910 212 uh, for the OSHA nerds out there. OSHA requires employers to identify workplace machinery that can cause injury to an employee. Machine injuries can occur at the point of operation. That's actually right where they're actually doing the work. You know, their hands are right there. From anything that's rotating and are moving parts or from flying chips and sparks. And the total violations that they cited according to OSHA's documentation was about 1,113 violations last year. It's kind of tied in with lockout, tagout, and all those other things. Forrest, what are OSHA's inspection priorities for the inspections relative to machine guarding? These six are really kind of, they really apply to any situation. So the first thing that OSHA is going to be looking at, and we're going to use the topic machine guarding, obviously, but 
if there's an imminent danger situation, they drive by and they see it. That's typically going to be in your construction locations where they can actually see that. The second priority would be severe injuries and illnesses. So you have a catastrophic injury. So you hospitalize some folks overnight and they have some type of an amputation and that kind of comes up on your reporting that you have to do. So the third priority would be obviously worker complaints, which is why our safety and health education or our communication is so vital in, in our industry. The fourth is referrals. So referrals will typically come from another agency. It might be some other um, uh, person in there that is doing something relative to another uh, safety and health program. And then the fifth one would be targeted inspections, which is kind of where your national emphasis and your local emphasis programs come into play. That's It becomes a targeted inspection. They're just coming up to see you. And the last priority is the follow-up inspection. So typically, we won't really get into the weeds on the whole citation process, but you get an OSHA visit. They see a few things. They cite you for a few things. Typically, you have 15 days to get it corrected and get all that stuff taken care of. And then depending on what's going on, they might come back six months later or at a time that they're choosing within that six months and come and see you again. So it's imminent danger, severe injuries and illnesses, worker complaints, referrals, targeted inspections, and follow-up inspections. Those are their six priorities of how they come to your door. So now after they've come to the door, I mean, they make it a process is trying to make it as complete as possible. So they're not trying to leave any loose ends, which is great that they take that effort. Now, let's go over a real world example about an employee who, who was inspected and and using one or more of these uh, priorities, kind of what were their findings and hopefully go through this case study that will help give a, a little more teeth to this topic. Sure. And we'll, we'll leave the uh, company name out of it. They'll appreciate that. But you could, you know, <laughs> if you want to find this case, it's easy enough to find on OSHA's webpage. It's there. The Department of Labor uh, fined a New Jersey auto parts seller $1.2 million for 33 workplace safety and health violations following a worker's serious hand injury from an OSHA inspection. So the fruit of that, if you will, they identified willful, re- willful violations, repeat violations, and some serious violations. And it's important to note that this site had been cited previously for point of operation hazards under the machine guarding standards with initial penalties of about $12,000 and change prior to this incident. So that's kind of where you're getting some of the willful citations. You know, that's where those come from. Typically, when OSHA comes to your door, Typically, you won't get a willful on something unless you've been cited for it previously. So it it demonstrates that you knew you should have had it and you didn't. You just didn't have it taken care of. Typically, when it's it's a first offense type of a thing, you're going to get a serious violation. They come back around within six months and hit you again, catch you for the same thing. Then they have complete authority to bump that up to a willful. And that looks like what happened here. So going back on, I think this is around uh, September 9th, back in 2021, they in- initiated the inspection after a vehicle lift crushed a worker's hand. And the agency determined that the company that operated this one LLC, part of this, underneath this uh, corporate umbrella, if you will, failed to have proper safeguards in place to protect employees from the accidental machine startup. That's kind of lockout, tag out, and some machine guarding thrown in. And the inspection went on to identify, like we said, 33 workplace safety and health violations, including willful repeat and serious citations. So those total penalties were uh, the exact amounts that they posted for the initial 
citation was $1,260,275. And so what they found out of this inspection was, and again, keep in mind, they had been inspected for and cited for machine guarding hazards prior to this. And then they had a, they had a, what we call a catastrophic injury. You got to report it, right? Something happened really bad. So they came back in and they cited them and said that they willfully failed to develop and use a lockout tag out and machine guarding procedures. So those topics typically kind of go together, even though they're individual assessments, because you have to kind of keep, you know, the blinders on, if you will, when you're looking at the two, two different things that you're trying to produce from those, but to prevent those employees from being hit by a moving conveyor line. So that was one. They willfully didn't prevent fires. So, which happened frequently along that conveyor line. So there was some evidence there that they found due to sparking tools that ignited some gasoline vapors that were either upstream or downstream from that process area. They willfully failed to keep an emergency egress clear. So emergency exits and those lanes that we always kind of struggle with operations to keep 28 inches of clearance clear. Sometimes they can, that can come back to bite you pretty hard. And uh, they did not protect employees from being caught in automobile lifts. They failed to, to equip employees with the proper PPE, personal protective equipment, or provide fire extinguisher training. And that one really is kind of depending on how you apply it in terms of when you get that. But we won't really, won't really go into that down those compliance weeds. But apparently they were supposed to do that according to their program or some type of information the way they reviewed during that inspection. And they hit them for that as well. And they exposed workers to electrical, noise, machine guarding, crushing, and flammable material hazards. Kind of sounds like they double dipped that compliance chip a little bit, but they can do that in some cases where one exposure can lead to a couple of different potential violations. This case study, it's like takes my words away from me. I just, I cannot believe that, you know, the, I feel like this is the exact reason why OSHA was started to begin with as far as protecting the workers and the fact that, that this is still going on in this day and age. It blows my mind, you know, especially us in the safety world and who are out there trying to make a difference and make it even more safe for employees. And then there's these companies that, you know, are caught willfully <laughs> failing to do these things that come up. I'm just speechless in hearing about this. Forrest, what are some practical things that employers can do to help prevent kind of these direct and indirect costs of the machine guarding injuries? Sure. You know, and it goes without saying, most of these companies are struggling like everybody else just to try to plug all 10 fingers and toes into the production dam, if you will, trying to, you know, where do we put these resources? So, you know, as we move forward into these practical things to do, you know, the main idea is, is just have a plan, just keep working towards it and having a good solid plan and having that good faith effort and reaching out to the folks when you need some more of the technical support. There, there is help out there. So uh, it's not all doom and gloom. So I, I definitely want to remind our listeners that there is a way through all this seemingly madness at the front. So the first thing that I would say is what to inspect. What do I need to inspect? That comes from the process, the step, if you will, of hazard identification and assessment. So that's the first thing. A good rule to remember is any machine, any part of it, any function or process which may cause injury, make it your plan to safeguard it in some way. Whether you have to in the black and white of OSHA standards or not, take a look at that. And when the operation of a machine or accidental contact, so think outside the box, not perfect scenarios, 
but real world scenarios. People are walking through the door and we're all carrying emotional and mental weight of everything that went on before we ever walked into the door. That's the real world for every single one of us. And so for our production managers out there, and our Oc Health and Safety professionals already know this. This is ingrained into our DNA. For management, production management, maybe not so much, you know, when it comes to safety and health. So be thinking about the worst case scenario. You've got somebody that's coming in that has some real world problems, family, financial, whatever, and their mind's not on task. Those days, those production days are 10, 12, 16 hours long, and people are really, really, that's where you need to make sure that you've got those gaps covered. So wherever you have any kind of equipment like that that's rotating, where it can injure others in the vicinity, you want to try to eliminate them first, obviously, with machine guarding, or control them if you can't with some barriers. So what are the things that I need to look at? Okay, well, the point of operation is always the first one. That's the worst one. The point where the work is performed on the material such as cutting, shaping, boring, or forming stock. Where are they getting their hands, their fingers, their toes? Where is that in relative to your machines, your equipment, and processes? That's the first place to start. That's the worst first. Then you can start to you deal with those first because that's probably your most likely thing that can happen. And then you work your way back. So the second thing to look at is maybe power transmission. Anything that's transmitting any kind of power for your machines, your equipment, or your processes. Look at all components, the mechanical system, the electrical system, components like flywheels, belts, pulleys, connecting rods, couplings, any kind of cams, spindles, chains, cranks, gears, anything where they can get touched that's transmitting power. And then the third thing I would say is just all other moving parts, right, while they're working. What is it, what is it that they're doing throughout that whole task? So think of motions like it's reciprocating, it's rotating, or it's transversing moving parts, as well as feeding mechanisms or injection port mechanisms. You know, something goes in, think of like a stamper, a metal plate stamper. So it's got metal stock that's rolling in one side, and it's bam, 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 it's stamping out whatever, and it's coming out the other side. And then look at any auxiliary parts of the machine. So just a really good Step-by-step, worst first, work your way back, and that's point of operation, power transmission, anything that's transmitting power, and then anything else. That just makes sense. Sometimes we can get focused on the moving parts instead of the power, and I can see how that basic steps will lead to making sure that you're hitting things in the right order, because when you go out of order, that's when your efforts just seem to cause more chaos. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you got to have a systematic process. You know, we always say trust the process, and anybody in manufacturing is going to understand that, you know, from value chain mapping to putting stuff out on the floor. You got to have that process down. You're going to miss I'm wondering, as you've been listening to the first half of this interview, are you asking yourself, do you need an experienced ergonomic partner? Are you overwhelmed with the number of positions you have to assess and don't know where to start? Do you want to perform physical demands analyses on your position? And are you wondering how to create post-offer testing for your new employees? Well, Fit for Work can help with our team of certified professional ergonomists. Check out our website, wellworkforce.com, and click on the Connect With Us button for more information. 
Yeah, so let's go to, I mean, how to fix those hazard preventions and controls. Sure, sure. What, you know, what to inspect is the first thing, and that's you're your identifying hazards, and you're assessing each one, and you've kind of got those mapped out. The next thing is you go to fix them. So when we're talking about machine guarding, that's obviously hazard prevention. We want to prevent it from ever happening, and controls is if you can't. So the main way you prevent it is by using the following main types of hazard, uh, machine guarding. And that's fixed machine guards. That means they're bolted on and they don't move. And you typically want to have uh, conversations with maintenance. Your maintenance personnel are your single greatest resource because you can fabricate a lot of the stuff in-house. Although you can go out and buy stuff, which is, you know, sometimes you need to do that. But you have a lot of tools and you have a lot of talent right in-house with, with your maintenance and facilities people. So, But keep in mind, when you put a guard on something, if maintenance has to maintain it, they have to get in there and lubricate something to keep the process rolling so that it doesn't create downtime later. You need to have a way for them to do that with a fixed guard at the right area you know, for that piece of equipment so they don't have to remove the guard. So that's kind of one of those things you want to definitely think about. The main machine guardings are fixed guards, interlocks, which is kind of your inner, you know, you open the door, the gate, and it shuts the machine off. It's wired into what they call the control circuits of that piece of equipment. Uh, you can have adjustable guards, obviously, you know, that adjust to a different stock or whatever. As you push something bigger, it's going to, it's going to move by itself or something smaller. And you can have self-adjusting guards. So fixed fixed guards, interlock devices, adjustable guards, and self-adjusting guards, that, that's kind of your staple where you want to see what you can do with that in-house. And then obviously reach out to your vendors and things like that for any uh, potential ones that already come with it. So if you want to look at the machine, typically you want to look at the model number and the serial number, contact the actual manufacturer and see if they have something already made for it. They are, you know, sometimes they sell them with it. Sometimes I get that question a lot, not to go too far off the, the topic here, but, but it is important. And how do you fix it and how do you fix it efficiently and effectively? So, you know, reach out to the manufacturer, see if they have any current information on that piece of equipment. The model number is serial number is always critical and see if you can go right there, especially if you don't have the internal resources from a, a maintenance and machine maintenance department or engineering maintenance department to do it in-house. You know, one thing that we talk about a lot on this podcast is training and education. Forrest, where does that play a role in this whole thing? We've talked about what to look for and how to fix it, but what, what about the education piece? Sure. It, it needs to be tied in, you know, especially with your new employee orientation or, you know, you're in process. And whenever you have new operators, you have uh, maintenance or setup personnel and you're changing that. There's new or altered safeguards or a different way to do it. Or when workers are just assigned to a new machine or operation. So it all kind of lumps into those different scenarios. You want to have the capacity or the flexibility to get this training in. The main things you need to train them on is a description and identification of the hazards associated with that particular site, equipment, and task-specific machine. Here's where it can hurt you. Here's how it can hurt you. And during the different operational processes, this is what that means here with this piece of equipment. That's what that looks like. Additionally, you want to talk to them about the safeguards themselves, you know, how they provide protection, right? how the hazards, what they do for them. So the difference between a fixed guard, well, that's kind of a no-brainer, I understand. It's on there. I can't get to it. But interlock devices, a lot of times folks will put magnets on the interlock devices so they can defeat the interlock. You know, it basically it zeroes out the function. And 
they can actually open up that door without the machine going off because it, it kind of burns out the sensor there that tells the control circuit to shut off. So, you know, you want to have ways, information to tell them, hey, don't do this, especially for those kinds of things. How to use those safeguards and why, how and under what circumstances any of those machine guards can be removed by them and by whom. In most cases, it's going to be a repair or a maintenance personnel who are the only ones that are authorized to do that. But sometimes you have operators where they have a jam and the way the machine is designed, it has a guard on it and they have to kind of remove it to get to that. You know, so you need to kind of look at from a training assessment. That might even be a secondary assessment that you do under your machine guarding program to see what changes in your education and your training needs and what that might mean to you. And then what to do. Mainly most people for operators contact your supervisor, contact maintenance, don't do anything with it. That's typically kind of what you see right down the middle of the road. If it's damaged, missing, and unable to provide any kind of protection that it was designed for. The truth of this is once you get all this information done, then for the refresher, it's real simple. You know, you're really getting it down really quickly and you can do that in about five, 10 minutes for a given series of equipment or classes of equipment. But you're always going to have that touch point of whenever something changes, you got new operators, you got something going on that's different, then you're going to have to have that capacity built into your training piece to make sure that everybody captures that information. You know, Forrest, I think a lot of people say they learn from mistakes. And I think that often the best way to learn from mistakes is somebody else's mistake because you didn't, you didn't do it yourself and you're not paying those consequences. What's something that our listeners can take away from this big mistake that the auto works place had as far as things that they failed on? Sure. The takeaway obviously is it's a solvable problem over time. A lot of these issues with machine guarding and equipment didn't just start yesterday and they won't get fixed today or tomorrow. So the main idea, the main takeaway is that we just have to have a process in place. Let's deal with the worst first. And that's this point of operation. Where are our people working with equipment where they can get their hands or their fingers or toes caught into something? And if it's not as obvious, then start looking at other pieces of equipment or other processes of that equipment where they might, under the worst case scenario, they're tired, they're sick, you know, they have family problems, their mind's not on task, long production phases. Start looking at those real world pieces of equipment. And the best way to kind of do that is through a JSA. So if you haven't really had a, a full comprehensive JSA and it, or it's been three years, those kinds of things can be done that way as well. Now, the machine guarding assessment should be considered its own kind of put blinders on. And if that's where you're at, hey, just go with that and start working on that one thing. But if you want to get more of a comprehensive look about what's going on and do more than one thing with the same kind of assessment process, look at re revisiting your JSA process just to kind of do a really wide angle view of where do we need to deal with this? What tasks are our people doing that are involving lockout, tagout, and machine guarding injuries? Great advice. A reminder to not only take the proper steps, but make sure that you know what those steps are. And you know, it's, it's not just about doing any of the step that you can necessarily, but it's making sure that you trust the process, do it the right way to make sure it's complete. And you know, and when it comes to moving things, it may not just be a machine, but it, or an area that the machine that's stationary, but it also might be a, an operational machine where you could have pinch points. You know, are you having the good enough guards to stop those as well? And I'm sure that counts in something that 
people need to look in as well, correct? Oh, 100%. You know, and the main idea is just that look at what you can do, not what you can't. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's solvable over time and tie into your resources. You have lots of resources internally. Your maintenance people are really, really smart people about this stuff. But machine guarding is a complex topic, especially from the regulatory side. And there are some standards in there that says, hey, it has to be done a certain way or a certain this kind of thing. So if you need to reach out and get a little bit more technical advice on the front end and kind of educate your people on what machine guarding is, what it isn't, or to kind of go with you and just kind of be a guide and a mentor throughout that whole process and train your folks at the same time, you know, the the key players, the stakeholders that are going to be doing this, look for ways where you can create, I would say, economies or efficiencies at scale. If you have kind of a lack of technical expertise in-house, well, maybe it's it's a good value to have somebody come in and help you with that process. And, and you can reach out to the American Society of Safety Professionals. You can contact your local uh, or your actual property and casualty insurance folks. A lot of times you have good safety pros there, and they may have a resource to help you out, or you can reach out to other other groups as well. That's great advice. Thank you so much for, for all your help and going through with us and breaking down this great case study that people can learn a lot from. Thank you, Forrest. You're welcome. Enjoy it. Thank you for having me. We really want to thank Forrest for joining us again and giving this great insight into machine guarding and the different things. You know, it is just so easy to make this list and get your priorities together and follow these sequential steps to make something much safer for your employees. And I asked the question, and it's something that we tend to focus or bring it back to a lot on this podcast, but the education and the training and making sure that you walk through those steps with your employees, whether it's a new person coming into your site, a new person at that job task, or even if there has been a new or altered safeguard that has been put in place, that education, that training needs to take place so that those employees continue to stay safe around that equipment. For sure. And those, you know, it's just equipment that can't be taken lightly the worst and easiest time is either when you first start or when you become complacent. You know, complacency when it comes to heavy machinery like that is where a lot of the issues are going to come from. So thank you all for listening to this episode of Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. Please like, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And to get started preventing injuries, please send us an email at podcast at wellworkforce.com or go to our website, wellworkforce.com. And remember, prevention improves lives.